Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Everyone and welcome to New Books in History. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Richard Jobes, the author of Backpack Ambassadors, How Youth Travel Integrated Europe. And the book was published by Chicago University Press in 2017. Hi there, Rick. Hello, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I'm happy to do so. So could you get us started, Rick, by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in working on youth? Yeah, well... Um, I was once young to begin. I grew up in a small town in western Kentucky. And um, as long as I can remember, I've been interested in history. And in college, I majored in history. And the other thing that got me interested in youth was, you know, learning about 1968, which at this point was, this is the late 80s. So um, was sort of like, holy cow, wow, <laughs> that's really fascinating and interesting. And so that, that sort of is what got me into thinking about young people's historical actors and youth as a historical subject. And your first book focused on youth as well, right? Right. So the first book was based on my dissertation. Um, it's called Riding the New Wave, Youth and the Jewization of France After the Second World War. And it looks at young people and youth in the, in the Fourth Republic of France, which is the 40s and 50s, and makes an argument about how France's recovery from the war, their sort of cultural reconstruction, placed a pretty heavy emphasis on rejuvenation and on the young itself. And so thinking about and with and through youth as a concept became a convenient means of sort of thinking about France and its um, recovery from the war. Reading this book, Rick, I mean, we do, full disclosure, we do know each other. I was kind of fascinated by how this project emerged both out of what I know to be your, you know, recurrent interest, continuing interest in the category of youth and thinking historically about, about youth, but also your own personal experiences of travel when you were a younger person. Uh, yeah. and still, <laughs> you're still traveling, yeah. not that you're so old. I was really fascinated by that, how you bring those two things together. Do you want to say mm. a few words about that? Sure. So first of all, I should say, you know, I mentioned I was I majored in history in, in college, but my decision to become a historian, that is to go to graduate school and get my PhD, uh, occurred while I was backpacking in Europe as a college student. Mm-hmm. I was on a summer program in Bregenz, Austria before my senior year of college. And then after the program's over, backpacked around Europe, loved it, just had such a wonderful experience and wanted to return frankly, mm-hmm. and thought, well, if I go to graduate school and pursue a PhD in European history, then I'll get to come back for work. So so that was pretty key to it. And then this project in particular, I was backpack ambassadors. I was living in Paris, researching my dissertation, and friends visited. And actually, these are friends I backpacked with in India prior. And they visited me in Paris, and we went to Amsterdam. While I was in Amsterdam, I was sort of like, love Amsterdam. That was, I don't know, my third time there, maybe, as a backpacker. And just started thinking maybe I could come up with a project that could bring me here. So the idea for Backpack Ambassadors dates back 20 years. Hmm. And so I, as I was finished my dissertation and was researching writing the new wave and publishing that, I was 
thinking about this project and starting to gather leads and things and came to the realization that by actually studying young people and youth travel itself, I could myself go to lots of different places and, and get to, you know, enable my own travel. I want to follow up on the other thing, including myself in the book, hmm. which is not very much, of course. No. It was a conscious decision in the sense that I was trying in Backpack Ambassadors to really foreground the voices of young people, hmm. really letting them articulate their experiences. And it was something I felt I didn't do well enough in writing a new wave. And so I was really deliberate about that in researching Backpack Ambassadors. And so I interviewed people and used memoirs and went to autobiographical archives and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it seemed relevant to sort of put my own voice in there to sort of also help the reader and those readers who were themselves backpackers at one time to maybe see themselves and their experiences as part of a, of a historical moment. You know, you don't think about it at the time, but in the aggregate, all kinds of things that we participate in, you know, we're, we're historical actors. So I thought it, was, it would be a way to maybe get readers to think that way too. No, and I think that's a really effective strategy in the book. There were different moments when reading the book, I was thinking about my own experiences of travel, but yeah, also having those moments when you either, you know, include information or the stories of individual youth travelers, including yourself. Um, mm -hmm. Those are really humanizing moments. So in the introduction to the book, Rick, you describe the project as a cultural history of integration from the bottom up. And you make the point that this is not a history of the European Union or its antecedents, that this is a book focused on non-state actors, that it's kind of a multilateral, multi-archival approach. Could you say more about what it means to do the history of integration from the bottom up and in what ways this is a book about Europeanization rather than a history of the European Union per se? Yeah, I think we often conflate the European Union with European integration as if they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I think European integration is, is a lot bigger process than just the EU. And the EU is itself a culmination of choices, political and economic decisions. There was an integration that was happening uh, among people uh, that was transnational and was a social process. And so I think youth travel is a case study for examining that. I think you could do other things too, but it's a way to explore the ways in which initially Western Europe and then, and then as the Cold War ends, uh, Europe became increasingly integrated, the peoples and the nation states themselves. So, Rick, the book covers the period from 1945 to 1992. And I just want to ask you if you could say something about these bookends. I mean, they might seem obvious, but maybe you mm -hmm. can tell us a little bit about the watershed moment that 1945 is for the project as a whole, but then also 1992 at the other end. You know, you don't really stop there, but it is a marker. Mm -hmm. So maybe mm -hmm. you could say a little bit about that. Well, 45, of course, is the, the conclusion of the Second World War. And uh, I mean, Europe was a mess. Uh, mm. Just incredible devastation and, and not just physical and material, but of course, you know, people and their lives. 45 sort of opens up as this moment that Europeans themselves are sort of confronted with, what have we done, right? And so there is this moment of uh, broad sort of embrace of internationalism, particularly because the hyper-nationalism had, had contributed significantly to two world wars. But then, of course, it's tempered very soon, the internationalism, by the onset of the Cold War. So it's it's very much about the post-war period as, as a 
40s and 50s recovering from the war. And then the 92 is sort of a combination of putting together the end of the Cold War combined with the passage of the Treaty of Maastricht, which establishes the European Union. Um, and of course, the Soviet Union dissolves right then too. Before we get into the discussion of the chapters of the book, Rick, I want to ask you a little bit about this book as a transnational history, you know, how you think about your contribution to transnational history, uh, your methodology, how you found or strategized what you would use for this book to make it a truly transnational history, and whether or not you see the book as some kind of intervention in how we think about how we should be doing transnational history. I mean, it's a term a lot of different people use, and some of them mean different things by it. So could you sort of situate the project methodologically for us a bit? Um, so my first book was about France, and I was you know, trained as a European historian and, and with an emphasis in French history. Mm-hmm. But even then, it was clear to me that, that you know, I had questions about parallel developments in other countries, but, you know, the strong similarities between what was happening in France with youth culture and youth and other places. And so I think there are some topics that kind of necessitate a transnational approach. Mm. And the history of, of youth and young people, I think, is one of those. The consistency of youth culture as it's moving across borders, right? Like, it's, it's not that transnational history denies the nation state at all, right? The nation states are there. They're conditioning all sorts of things. But the nation state and nationalities as uh, frameworks of structuring the study are backgrounded, right? They're there and they're having an impact and they're part of the study, but foregrounding the cross-border connections. And of course, because I'm studying travel and mobility, holy cow, I mean, mm-hmm. we're truly transnational, right? People moving across international and national borders throughout Europe in their travel. So the transnational approach, I think, really offers historians of youth and young people a great tool to think more complexly about what's going on for, you know, age categories like that. And then there, you, had, you had a second part to this question. I can't remember. Uh, oh, about archives. This is a, a vast project. You presumably had to set some limits at some point. So I'm just wondering oh. a little bit about how you chose and how you moved from one thing to another. And, you know, but you were a kind of transnational person moving as well, you were doing this project. So Right. Well, that's true. But, but there was no obvious starting point. Mm. Um, I mean, this is something, you know, historians of young people are very familiar with this and other historians, too, depending on what they work on. There's not really, um, particularly if you want to foreground the agency of young people, Mm -hmm. there's not obvious places, archival collections to do that. You know, archives are very state centric and government centric. And so, you know, there's not a lot of traces necessarily other than the programs that governments put in place for those Mm -hmm. things. For, for young people to research and study. So I knew I was going to have a pretty creative application of, of source material. And as you notice, there's, uh, I mean, there's government stuff and all kinds of social scientific data and there's film and music and television and poetry and all kinds of periodical stuff. So it was really scavenger hunt, to be honest. And you, you get some leads and you follow some leads that intrigue you, and, and, and sometimes they, they develop into really good stuff, and then oftentimes they don't. I mean, I think the messiness of it, of the biology, is, yeah. you know, kind of illustrates a little bit some of the themes of the book. You said something just now that I just want to follow up on before we go on, which is, you know, you said we've talked a couple of times now about the agency of youth, and you have this 
Really interesting turn of phrase in the introduction about how the book is about, or one of the emphases of the book is, and I'm quoting you here, how the young themselves create youth. And I was really struck Mm. by that phrasing. Could you say a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, well, youth is a social body, right? Youth is a, a social construct. It's also a life stage, the meaning of which changes over time and place. Mm-hmm. And so the young people are participants in that. I think, again, historians of young people, they, they know all of this, but I think other historians too often think about youth and young people through deviance and subculture, right? Mm-hmm. The emphasis on delinquency and all that sort of stuff. And I really want to convince people to take youth and young people seriously as having um, impact on the big questions of the day, right? Mm-hmm. That, that, that young people, particularly in the aggregate, uh, as youth, are affecting um, all kinds of political and social and cultural phenomena. I want to ask you, Rick, about the the term and the and the history of tourism and how you think about this book in relationship to that. I mean, whether you see could I could I just change you know <laughs> the title to how youth tourism integrated Europe and what mm-hmm. what kind of okay or potential tragedy. Uh, would that be like what? What? How yeah. do you see this as not a history of how youth tourism integrated Europe? Well, I, I decided on travel because I do think it's important to distinguish it from tourism because this form of tourism, and it certainly is a form of tourism, was really strikingly new mm-hmm. uh, in its development. So this is, of course, a history in part. Uh, of the development of backpacking as a as a practice, right? Of young people backpacking around. That's, um, mm. but but I really came upon thinking about this as mobility, mm. right? Transnational mobility, moving across states and within. And the two biggest systems of mobility in post-war Europe, transnational mobility, were tourists and migration, mm. immigration. And what's interesting about the youth, the youth backpackers is they connect those two systems. Mm. On the one hand. Their travel is touristic. And on the other hand, it's migratory. Mm. And those two distinct groups of people, the tourists going around Europe and the immigrants moving through Europe, the youth travel backpackers are interacting with both sets of groups. Mm-hmm. And, and so they kind of bring those two things together. For example, this, this affected the way in which young travelers were even perceived within Europe, right? That is, the more backpacking young backpacking came to look like vagrancy instead of tourism, the more negatively it was perceived by the public and the more forcefully it was regulated by the state. In the book's first chapter, Rick, you look at the cultural internationalism through which youth uh, move across borders in Europe in the wake of the Second World War. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, maybe this is a good time to do that, to just talk about the roots of this brand of internationalism and how and what, I mean, you already mentioned, you know, talked about 1945 as this important watershed, but specifically with respect to this internationalism and youth mobility, what does 1945 change and what's the kind of prehistory here that you're intervening in? Well, the prehistory, the immediate prehistory is uh, the interwar period. Of course, we get in the 1920s, we, we get, we get a, a surge of internationalism following the First World War, League of Nations, of course, mm. um, but, but more things beyond that. Um, and, and there is indeed a considerable effort at youth exchange between France and Germany as well in the 20s and the 1930s. Um, it wasn't nearly on the mass level that will happen 
that I talk about in the post-war period. But so that's that's already happening as well. So there's a, there's also this roots of an impetus to uh, utilize young people as a way to uh, reconcile uh, the belligerent countries. Specifically for youth travel, the international youth hostel system dates from the interwar period too. Mm. Hostel began in Germany just before the First World War, and then the First World War really stalls its development, and then it expands rapidly in Germany right after the war. And then other countries start adopting the youth hostel model. And so by the early 30s, we have an International Youth Hostel Association. Now, this this is one of the useful ways of pointing to how 1945 sort of shifts things. Mm. In the interwar period, hosteling was much more about um, nation building. It was get the young people out in the countryside rambling to see and know their country, right? Like citizenship training. And boy, what a what a profound shift in hosteling um, after the war, where the leadership of international youth hosteling and then the states themselves and the local hosteling organizations instead shift radically to know what hosteling ought to be about is going abroad and welcoming young people from other countries into our own country. Mm. And they really, I mean, they go for this hard. And so hosteling, like what we think of as hosteling, it really dates from the post-war period. In the 40s and 50s, it becomes international travel. It becomes much more urban. It becomes associated with rail travel. Yeah. The first and second chapters kind of move chronologically, but I I sort of think of them together. I don't know if you did, but think of them together as chapters that are really focused on these questions of reconstruction and reconciliation and also the emphasis on, well, in the first chapter, you refer to the problem of Germany, but in the second chapter, it's really about France and Germany. And and, and that also kind of ties in with this idea of what emerges, at least in this early period, as Europe, which is really focused on France and Germany. So it's mm-hmm. not really a question, but um, I guess I want to ask, yeah, about the role of France and Germany here and how France and Germany come to stand for Europe in this period of reconstruction and reconciliation. Well, it, it's sort of interesting in the way that other countries are all looking to what's going to happen with France and West Germany and and want France and West Germany to sort of somehow reconcile. Mm -hmm. And what was really surprising to me when I started doing the research was to find that in the French zone of occupation in post-war Germany, which was the southwestern corner of Germany, Mm -hmm. General Koenig there, who was the head of the military occupation and, and his people immediately were, were like trying to get young people together and they set up an office to, to get an exchange of young Germans and young French and make them go to, get them to go to summer camp together. So here immediately after the war in the 40s, we have thousands of young French and young Germans um, interacting in this way. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it wasn't problematic. Um, you know, there were folks who were against it with, with good reason. You know, there was this lingering animus, to be sure. But I, I do think we have to credit the political leadership of France and West Germany in the 40s and 50s for recognizing that it was in their interests for their states to try to get along and work together. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm trying to highlight all these various things that were sort of below the radar of, of significant uh, cultural interaction through young people, the French and the West Germans, which, which culminates in the 
Franco-German Youth Office, which the French and the Germans know this very well. It still exists. It's hugely popular. And it basically is just this joint office that underwrites and subsidizes youth exchange and youth travel programs that incorporate both French and German young people. And it was a huge success. You talk about that youth office in the in the second chapter of the book and the establishment of that office in 1963. And along the way, in those first two chapters, you you talk about this growing infrastructure to support youth mobility, hosteling, which we've already sort of touched on, the work of cultural mm. reconstruction, these work camps. Uh-huh. Um, how does the state uh, or other organizations, how, how, how do these bodies start to facilitate this expansion of youth mobility in this early period of the, I guess, late 40s and 50s through the building of various types of forms of infrastructure? Right. Great. So they, they prioritize youth travel in sort of even their border controls, for example. Mm-hmm. So immediately after the war, there's all kinds of currency constrictions. And in fact, Germans are, are during the occupation, their travel is very highly restricted. But the people who do get to go abroad and travel are young Germans. And a consortium of European states uh, sometime in the late 50s or mid 50s, they agree that young people can travel on joint visas. Mm. They start reducing rail fares. The interrail pass and the and the Ural Youth Pass are are, are later come come in the early seventies. But but they already are sort of laying the groundwork for that as well. So they're they're really prioritizing the ability of young people to cross borders, and they talk about it as if it's for the purpose of you know bringing their countries closer together. And then of course you have the young people as well who are. Making demands. There's the European Youth Campaigns, this pro-European integration group that's uh, multinational, Mm -hmm. and they make a habit of protesting at borders, like demanding open borders, basically, Mm -hmm. and bonfires, and they burn down customs buildings and stuff like this, and you know placards and whatnot. So the powers that be seem amenable and interested in facilitating and promoting youth travel. And then you also have the bottom up people, Mm -hmm. people themselves sort of making these demands. And what about these events? Uh, You talk in particular about the European youth rally of 1951, the rally on the Rhine. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I wanted to ask you to say something about the significance of that event. And then this other, I guess, East Soviet-sponsored World Youth mm. Festival as the kind of counter to that. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, the history of the Cold War is huge throughout this book. Um, yeah. but those two events seem to really epitomize something in terms of the tensions or differences between Western Europe and Eastern Europe here. Yeah, so they're both in 1951, in the summer of 1951. So the uh, the Youth Festival in East Berlin, this happens every few years. Uh, it's it's the, uh, the World Assembly of Youth. It's Soviet-sponsored. Um, and massive, mm. tens of thousands of, uh, of young people from, from all over the world attend these sorts of things. So there was one scheduled for East Berlin that was meant to highlight, you know, the GDR and, and, and youth and young people. So the French occupation is winding down. The occupation of Germany is winding down right at this moment. Mm-hmm. And the French office that had been arranging all these sorts of exchanges between young French and young Germans – basically arranges with the newly established Federal Republic of Germany, Adenauer's Germany, to hold a youth rally kind of as a competing Western European youth event. Mm -hmm. 
And it's very much bound up with the moment of European integration. Which, so the ECSC, this is when that negotiations are happening. Right. And it's all about, it's, it's truly about promoting the European movement in the sense of European integration. And so like the people who come and speak or uh, Spock from Belgium and, and all these pro-European politicians and that sort of stuff. So it's, mm-hmm. it's about building among young people who come around from Western Europe through kind of a summer camp format. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the Rhine at the Lorelei Rock on the Rhine, a, a, a sense of Europeanism, because Europeanism was seen to be a counterpoint to communism, right? right. We don't want to lose the young people to communism. What are young people excited about? Well, maybe we can get them excited about Europeanism and 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 hold off the appeal of of communism. In this uh, discussion, especially in chapter two, of how culture is sort of used to, uh, and cultural exchange is used to facilitate politics, you make a really interesting point about how uh, through some of these events and policies and strategies, French and German youth did become more European, but not necessarily less national in the process. Mm. Can you say something about that? Yeah, you know, I think this is often set up as some sort of, you know, false choice, right? Mm. That, you know, to be an internationalist is is to not be to, to deny your nationality or to be European is to deny your nationality and that and that wasn't the experience of people and it wasn't the intention even of the of these programs and all the data suggests that that it wasn't the outcome in fact for the French and West Germans they were kind of supposed to be French you know for their West German counterparts and the West Germans were supposed to you know you, you, you need to play up, play up your Germanness. You know what I mean? Right. Because, because they were supposed to be the, I don't know, um, not the, not the embodiment or essence or anything like that, but they were, they were, they were supposed to demonstrate that one can be French and be German and not be hostile and right. not be enemies, you know? And then I, one other thing on that, on that yeah, chapter, yeah. Just as a, you know, a giddy his- historian's moment, you know, when you're in the archive, <laughs> you're just like, you, you find something and you're just like, wow, this is great. I was in the UK National Archives and then found those internal reports from the mid to late 1960s of the UK government, basically, you know, who are desperate to get into the EEC and they're being denied it by, by de Gaulle in particular, and find these reports that sort of say, you know, what we did wrong. We didn't have these youth exchange programs. Mm. They talk about the Franco-German Youth Office and, and that this really facilitated France and West Germany doing this. And then I found similar reports in the U.S. National Archives mm. where in the 1960s they're looking at, at this and sort of saying, holy, this really had a huge impact. There were moments reading the book when I think the one that really stands out for me, and this is kind of weird to talk about this in a video, in a sound recording, because um, people have to get the book to look at it. The caricature cartoon of the French and Western oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, leaders, you know, pushing, I think there's a portrait on the wall of de Gaulle yeah. and uh, Adenauer, Adenauer yeah. pushing like Marianne and Michael as babies. And then I can't remember who's in the foreground, but um, later, you know, just... Seeing that illustration, I thought, oh, I bet when he found that. Yes, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Over the oh, moon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. You just get you just get so tickled and you're just like, woohoo. So, Rick, the third chapter, Youth Movements, really turns around 68. And I guess before we talk about the actual contents of that chapter, I want to ask you, you know, as a, as a historian who works on youth in the post-war period, how does 68 work and not work for you? Like, I kind of feel like it's this massive magnet (laughs) in 
middle yeah. of the post-war period where all roads lead to 68, all roads lead yeah. from 68. Like, how do you deal with that overdeterminedness of 68? Yeah. Like, how do you get away from it? Do you want to get away from it? Like, how does that, how does that work as a historian, specifically one of youth in, in this period? Gosh. <laughs> You really, you really capture it for me there. I mean, yeah, sort of. You're inevitably drawn to it, and yet I, I, you can't. I keep pulling me back in. <laughs> it is so overdetermined, and of course, it's the 50th anniversary. So part of this is just 68 fatigue. Hmm. Um, is that a thing? That should be a hashtag. 68. <laughs> it is now. The, the the intriguing thing about 68 is it's so difficult to synthesize all these things happening in all these different places and to make sense of the simultaneity of it. Mm. And the, you know, the stuff that keeps coming out that's about looking at other places other than Europe and Columbia and where in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you keep going, oh, gosh, look at that over there. And look, I mean, it's fabulous stuff. And at some point, somebody, it's not going to be me. Um, <laughs> it's going to have to, uh, you know, wrestle with this and, and kind of figure it out. I was, I keep expecting some book to come out this year because of the 50th anniversary that's mm-hmm. going to explain it all. That's one of the things that makes it so intriguing is the scale of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of what's happening and where it's happening and who's involved. So, Rick, I have to ask you, like, what does this chapter do? to the way we think about 68. What's your, what's your move? Um, a few things. It does a few things. One of which is it talks about how the youth travel culture that had developed since the war in the 20 years prior was in part a precondition for how 68 took place in Europe. That is, young people uh, were moving between the various protest sites freely across the borders, mm-hmm. it, as had become their habit. And this is true for both the political militants, right? The political militants themselves over the course of the 60s had, had developed transnational connections and there's lots of good work on that. But it's also true for the just the backpacker, right? The people who are sort of there in 68 traveling and just hear something's happening in another place and make their way over there. Mm-hmm. The sort of informal participants. That sort of cross-border travel was fundamental to the way 68 played out in Europe. But also, one thing that we didn't we didn't see a lot about or a lot of people talk about is that uniting Europe in a borderless Europe was actually a key theme in these protests. Mm. And so, you know, I have a bunch of posters in there related to it. And then you have, you know, I talk at some length about Daniel Combendy and, and his uh, sort of peregrinations around the continent, which, which throws into relief this other dimension. Um, which which is actually, you know, the, the part that this is one of those aha moments. Mm-hmm. These states, as we talked about a moment ago, these countries had been promoting youth travel and, and wanting young people to go abroad and, and diminishing border controls for the young and all that sort of stuff. But then in 1968, they, they throw them back up, particularly mm-hmm. targeting the young. Right. So now that youth travel and that political actually participation, which is what young people are doing, is seen to be problematic. And and what the aha moment was when I realized that the xenophobia conveyed about young people traveling around the border, all this sort of stuff resonated really strongly with uh, what was happening with immigration in the 1960s. Right. They're talking about these young protesters the way they talk about particularly non-white immigrants and the sorts of things they're deploying against them, the rhetoric, the rhetoric that they're using, 
uh, border controls, deportation mm-hmm. are the tools that the, was being used for, for, for this other group that's crossing borders too. I wonder about this throughout the book, but especially in this chapter, and I'm just trying to think of how to put this, the idea of the political spectrum or the spectrum of politics involved in this in this history. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that when people think about youth, they tend to focus on delinquency and other things like that. And I mean, when people think about youth in this period, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, you know, there's this strong association, largely because of, you know, peace activism and anti-Vietnam war protesting and other kinds of things. There's a strong association set of associations between young people and their political activism on the left, their anti-capitalist political activisms. But mm-hmm. of course, you know, those aren't the only young people moving around <laughs> and mm-hmm. connecting. And so I guess I just wonder about that. You know, how do we think about the politics of these young people? In 68, the, the left politics seems to really dominate the scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's this tension between the, the left politics of an integrating Europe and, you know, without borders, and then this liberal capitalist kind of politics of an integrating Europe. So I don't know. I guess I just wondered about how you think about left and middle and Right. Um. Well, there's, that, you know, there's also, interestingly, and, and I, there's some new work on this, in 68, young right-wingers also demanding a united Europe. Mm. But, of course, their vision of united Europe is similar to Hitler's, right? It's, it's sort of that new order sort of, sort right. of thing. But, you know, the, the one thing I wanted to – I try to emphasize a little bit in the book, even though I talk about Daniel Cohn-Bendy and whatnot, is that, you know, the thing that, the thing that made 68 – we, we talked about earlier about the staggering scale of it. Uh, it was the informal people. Mm. It was the, it was the participation of just masses of people who who weren't the core revolutionaries coming out and supporting and participating. You know, I think we too often don't give them credit. If they're not like hardcore revolutionaries, then you know you know they're just playing. And then, yeah, there's some play, no doubt, right? Um, mm. But nevertheless, they're there, and because of their significant numbers, they, they're the ones that turn this into a, a big thing. Mm-hmm. 68 also politicizes travel, right? So that if you're traveling around, you know, backpacking in Europe in 1968, that's what people are talking about. Right. You know, when you hitchhike and you're in a car or you're in a hostel in the Alps somewhere, oh, were you in Paris? And, you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it's a consuming sort of event for all the people who are there. Right. It's also in this chapter that, you know, the reason not to call it how youth tourism integrated Europe kind of comes up again in a, in a particular way where you talk about the pejorative of, you know, the revolutionary tourist or dismissing that movement that you just described, particularly yeah. when it involves people who are maybe not as militant or not as committed or who are for a few months and then aren't after that, that to, to, to dismiss it as revolutionary tourism is to miss some of the effectiveness of their presence. Right. So 68 is obviously a big part of changing certain kinds of things uh, in the arc of this story in the book. But the fourth chapter kind of tracks some of the changes after the mid 60s that are not just about 68. So you're looking at broadening international participation. So besides 68, what accounts for the for what changes uh, from the mid 60s on? Well, that chapter really 
um, that's going to be the chapter that's, I think, most recognizable um, mm-hmm. as far as backpacking goes to people. This is when it sort of reaches <laughs> its, its peak backpacker mm-hmm. era, sort of when the cultural icon of the backpacker and stuff. And, and so part of that is sheer numbers. Right. All the hitchhikers with the backpacks and all that sort of stuff. And so a few things come into play about that. First, uh, the number of Americans backpacking in Europe grows mm. significantly. And not just Americans. I mean, non-Europeans, I should say, but primarily Western uh, Canadians, a lot of Canadians, for example. <laughs> Americans have been there from the very beginning in, in smaller numbers. But of course, the, the problem for the Americans was they had to cross the Atlantic. And so in the late 1960s, jet travel and then charter flights and student discounts dropped the price of getting to Europe, mm-hmm. like just plunged in the late 60s, right around 1970. So getting to Europe for Americans became a lot cheaper. And then the Eurail Youth Pass is introduced. Now, the Eurail is interesting. The Eurail Pass originates in the late 50s and is designed to get primarily dollars, currency, into Europe by appealing to middle-class Americans Mm -hmm. uh, to come and, and travel in Europe for a month or so. Um, wasn't at all designed or intended for young people. Now, the original Eurail Pass was first-class travel. So over the course of the 60s, as increasing numbers of young Americans are traveling, they realize that this Eurail Pass is a really good deal. Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the 60s, they are logging up, particularly in the summers, these uh, first, first-class rail cars. And, you know, they're you know, they got all their gear piled everywhere and they maybe haven't bathed uh, frequently and what. And so there's like all these complaints about all these hippies traveling. And so they introduced the Eurail Youth Pass right there at the beginning of the 70s. And then the Interrail Youth Pass, which is the, the rail pass for Europeans, the Eurail Pass is for non-Europeans, also comes into play right then around 1970. So you have then in terms of the Americans, by the early 1970s, about a million young Americans mm. traveling within Europe each year. And then you add to that, there's, I don't know, it, it varies, of course, but about a million and a half Germans, uh, young Germans are, are, are the most active travelers. But you even have nearly, uh, by the early 70s, just under a million Dutch. And the Netherlands, that's not a big place. You know, it's not a populous place. So you have been in the 70s millions of young people annually crisscrossing around the continent and they're trying to do it as cheaply as possible budget travel uh hitchhiking backpacking and and all this sort of stuff so multiple things come together at the time and and then of course the counterculture is a there's considerable overlap between backpacking and and counterculture i mentioned hippies Mm -hmm. amsterdam is the magical center of vacation hippies (laughs) well that's a good lead into something I want to ask you about, which is, you know, this chapter is really one where you get into, I mean, not that pleasures and dangers don't come up at all before this, but this is really a chapter where you talk, you get into talking about drug culture and uh, sexual relationships, you know, as you're talking about this community of practice. And I really like that phrase that part of the community of practice includes all kinds of uh, practices around, that are, I guess, I don't know if you'd call them subcultural or, or what. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, if you wanted to say some some words about that part of the overlap between the counterculture and and youth travel. Yeah, so 
I mean, the counterculture itself, and of course we think of, when we think of the counterculture, we think of hippies. It was very much embedded in mobility, right? It was about moving around, hitchhiking, you know, the, the classic Volkswagen bus that's all painted up, and mm-hmm. or the Merry Pranksters for that matter, right? Sure. Um, that was sort of part and parcel. Now the, the And then style. So backpackers were, you know, they wore jeans, they had long hair, and, and that doesn't mean they were all hippies. But there were hippies who who accessed in Europe and made use of the youth network of mobility, passing from one place to another. And of course, there were centers of activity. Amsterdam was um, one of the big ones, but but others as well. So you get a little mini history in there about how Amsterdam came. You know what we think of as Amsterdam mm-hmm. uh, as a backpacker destination, how that came to be. And and I got to say that was one of the other sort of great surprises in doing the research. So the the riots, for example, that take place in, in August 1970 in Dam Square. So I didn't know anything about I didn't know anything about those. I never heard of those when uh, when I started the project. Right. And the whole response of the of the of the city itself to this massive influx of backpackers who came there to hang out in Vondel Park and Dam Square, they really tried to be helpful and accommodating and welcoming as much as they could. And that was an interesting thing to see as well. And so part of the reason so many young people were flocking to Amsterdam was the tolerant attitude towards cannabis. There's just, just no question, right? And that's one of the main reasons Amsterdam becomes a, you know, by the 1980s, you're backpacking around Europe, you're going to Amsterdam. Right. You're going to be there for a day or two. So throughout the book, Rick, you certainly talk about the experiences of, of men and women, but this is a chapter in which you really focus, zoom in a little bit more on the gender. So I want to ask you about that and the gender of youth travel in in this period that you're talking about. And then, I mean, it's not the same as this, but while I'm coming at the question of categories of difference between young people, I guess I want to ask about the whiteness of these youth travelers, um, Mm -hmm. these European youth travelers, whether there are uh, significant exceptions to that, like whether there are any exceptions to that, like what, mm-hmm. what, how you think about gender and race in this project. Yeah, so gender. Of course, there's men and women threaded throughout it, but really it is in chapter four that, that I confront the way in which this travel was itself gendered. In particular, there, there's a pretty striking contrast between backpacking and, and study abroad. Mm. And let me point out Whitney Walton's work in this in this regard study abroad you know has been and remains in fact overwhelmingly more women than men participate uh it varies uh and this is still the case and not just to france or other places but as a, as in general and it's true in erasmus too by the way hmm. roughly two to one in terms of ratios wow in the 20th century of women to young men the the first study abroad programs what we really think of as study abroad programs were to France and developed in the 1920s, and they were for young women. So they they started as being designed for young women, and so study abroad had all kinds of protocols related to that, right? Very much about group travel and chaperone and all that sort of stuff. So so study abroad as this very structured, you know, safer uh, oversight thing was deemed, you know, more appropriate or the the way by which um, young women could travel to Europe. And then, of course, once they're studying abroad in Europe, they take off and, you know, do independent travel themselves, you know, on the weekends or 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 after the program's over. On the other hand, backpacking really takes on this, this machismo sort of, you know, romanticized male, you know, hmm. going out, exploring, independence, all that sort of stuff. So they, they 
they each, both in terms of who's doing it, but also the ways in which they're talked about and thought of, take on a gender dimension. And then, of course, there's the, particularly for, for young women, the danger of sexual assault mm. uh, that comes with being a backpacker or a hitchhiker or an independent traveler um, that, you know, makes it a different experience. So the, the whiteness of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we all have things in our books that we sort of wish we'd done better or more. And I think people reading the book will conclude that this integration that took place from the bottom up that was young was also pretty darn white. Mm. You know, I talk about this throughout non-European, non-white uh, travelers were uh, much more carefully scrutinized mm. at borders, study abroad, students from Africa or elsewhere were surveilled, right? They weren't allowed to travel. Like these African students in, uh, in the 50s in, in, in London wanted to, you know, kick around Europe a little bit and, and the government wouldn't let them leave. Mm. There certainly are non-European, non-white travelers, the Japanese in particular, start coming in in, uh, in significant numbers in the late 60s and throughout the 70s and 80s. You know, I include the terrible story of Habib Grimsey in there, who's a, right. who's a young Nigerian who's murdered while, while traveling on a train. I, I mentioned earlier the difficulty of, of researching um, this sort of stuff and that you follow leads uh, and sometimes they dry up. And so this dimension is actually one thing I, I wanted to mm. do more. I was following a handful of leads, and they all were kind of bust. I'm confident there's material out there, and I know people who are doing work on this, and, and I'm eager for it to come out. And then stuff's come out since, you know, I turned the book in, the manuscript in a couple of years ago. You know, it's one of those things where you see something, and you're like, ah, sure. <laughs> if, this, if this had only, I'd only had this, I could have incorporated, you know, that. So this speaks as well to the current, one of the current issues, right? Mm. This borderless Europe, this free mobility that comes about. And as I argue, and I really do think young people were hugely important to bringing that mobility, that free mobility within Europe about. And, and that actually incidentally is among Europeans, whenever they're polled, it's the most, it's the thing they like the best about integration mm. is a borderless Europe. But that borderless Europe, that free mobility that was constructed, that was young and European, it was also white. Yeah, so throughout the book, there's there's dimensions of this. It's not as richly pursued as, as I had hoped, and it's just one of those things where I ran out of time and money and needed to get the book done. I wanted to ask you about it because there are some exceptions and some stories in there, and yeah, and because you know you do have this thing, to, especially towards the end of the book, about you know these notions of the self, and I just I do I think especially with respect to the implications, the longer term implications and legacies of the book that those issues of gender and race are interesting. Right. And then there's the additional thing of, of, of course, European backpacking travel spilling out of Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, across the Mediterranean and then, you know, into, and then across South Asia in these dimensions that are premised upon and, and based within sort of a, a post-colonial and neo-imperialist sort of way, you yeah. know, the hippie trail and all that sort of stuff, which again, I, I don't, go on and on about but um yeah that's in there too yeah it's funny because i'm looking at my notes for the fifth chapter of the book east of the wall south of the sea and i have a good handle on what was in that uh chapter it's the last one that i read um but it's kind of amazing how much is going on in that chapter i mean you well you start the chapter with your own story of traveling to berlin in 1990s and seeing where Mm. the waters play so it's a chapter in which you're really 
bringing up the centrality of music to youth travel in this period, and particularly in the period that you're talking about uh, at the end of the 80s and into the 90s. But you're also raising issues about new age culture and the hippie trail, as you mentioned, and these circuits of travel and their relationship to this history of, you know, imperialism. So it's hard to know which question to to ask you. I mean, it all comes together in this chapter. But I guess the the main question that I want to ask maybe comes back to something that has come up a lot as we've been talking, but really comes to the fore in this chapter, which is the relationship of this history of youth travel to the history of the Cold War. And so I guess you can certainly talk about music (laughs) and, you know, all those other things I'm really interested to hear. For $600. (laughs) I'm interested to hear you say more about all of those themes, but um, I guess I'm I'm really interested in what you have to say about the kind of back and forth of how youth travel participated in what we might call the end of the Cold War. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, how that moment of transformation in the late 80s and early 90s, what did it do to youth travel? Mm-hmm. Well, the so-called Iron Curtain, of course, was was rather porous. But interestingly, and there's lots of you know, I, this isn't original to me. There's lots of work on this. You know, one of the one of the primary things that was moving, particularly west to east, was uh, music uh, and other youth cultural products, particularly rock and roll. So, mm. we have historically talked about international youth culture, right? When we talk about the '60s and '70s, and you may have noticed in the book, I I intentionally use I say transnational youth culture mm. because I think it's more accurate term. That is that the that it's not like the nationalities are coming together in youth culture in an international way, but rather youth culture is, you know, crossing all these different boundaries and, and seeping into these different places. I talk about in this chapter two, Spain quite a bit. Mm. And so it's really permeating into Eastern Europe as are young people uh, traveling there as well. And sort of, they become a conduit of cultural transfer and Berlin in particular in the 1980s becomes this, I mean, that's one of those, that would have been a fun place to be. It's sort of this unruly frontier town. Mm. So there's concerts that happen in, in West Berlin and uh, East Germans will gather at the wall, you know, trying to hear the concert in the West and this, you know, ends up in riots and arrests. And so there's all this sort of stuff mm-hmm. going. And then, of course, within rock and roll itself is an articulation of mobility, which I talk about to some degree. I mentioned before that you sometimes you have leads that you miss in the big picture. Then there are these small details that you don't can't believe you overlooked. So I can't believe I didn't include in this chapter Kraftwerk's uh, Trans European Express, oh, which yeah. is I mean it doesn't change it. It wouldn't change the book. But it would be like this great little detail to talk about. Huh. And so when the wall comes down, the iron curtain comes down, you have uh, young people traveling, you know, into the east and eastern Europeans gobbling up interrail tickets and traveling to the west. And interesting, the interrail pass also, even even like in the early 1980s, the interrail pass, which is the rail pass for Europeans, mm-hmm. included it included Morocco, it included Turkey, it included Romania. Uh, so the interrail pass actually precedes, hmm. you know, that sort of youth mobility is already expanding to the south and to the east prior to the end of the Cold War. And so when the Cold War ends, what kind of watershed is that for this history of youth travel? So the Cold War had a a circumscribing effect on youth travel. Um, So the youth travel, it really starts in the north and the west of Europe and moves into the south and the east of Europe in this period. Mm. Um, of, of this 50 years as sort of a, a, a widespread 
practice of travel, of who's mm-hmm. doing it. You know, the Cold War, as far as the effect on youth travel itself, you know, sort of has the effect of dissipating it. You know, it's it's diffused uh, out beyond Europe. And then, of course, technology has a lot to do with this, too. Right. right? I mean, the end of the Cold War is also the beginning of the Internet. Yeah. Um, and so and so just backpacking travel itself really undergoes fundamental changes. It really significantly in the last 25 years has changed. What about these hot words, you know, globalization, neoliberalism, and I guess the more recent, you know, crises, multiple crises of the European Union, when we think about these last couple of decades in terms of youth travel or think about youth travel and the role that that these things might be playing more recently, you know, I mean, Brexit, uh, you know, just, I just wonder if you have some thoughts on how the book might contribute to us having a more readers, having a more, I don't know, nuanced or critical understanding of the longer term history of some of these crises or, or not. Well, so Brexit, let's take that. So I I turned in, uh, when I turned in my manuscript, the Brexit vote was, you know, like a couple months away. And I didn't think it was going to pass. Um, so in between turning my manuscript and when, you know, I basically got the copy edit proofs, Brexit happened. And I was like, I wrote to the editor, my editor, and I said, I, you know, I'm going to have to rewrite a considerable portion of, of my epilogue because this changes things. I mean, a few things. All the data that came out about the voting patterns and that sort of stuff indicated mm-hmm. that the younger you were, the more uh, traveled you were, the more educated you were. Uh, the more likely you were to vote to remain. Mm-hmm. And we saw young people protesting immediately that June, right after the Brexit vote through London, you know, mm-hmm. really concerned that their ability to travel, study and work uh, was going to be curtailed. Prime Minister May announced a, a little bit ago that she wants the UK to stay in Erasmus, talking mm-hmm. about how great Erasmus is and all this stuff. And that's one of the things they want to keep and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So, so Brexit sort of throws a bunch of these things into relief. And so I mentioned the free interrail mm-hmm. thing. It's been the last couple of years, uh, a couple of young Germans have spearheaded it, but there's a movement for the EU to provide free interrail tickets to all European residents. So it's not just citizens, but, you know, valid citizens and residents of the EU, a free interrail ticket for their 18th birthday. Right. Well, that would cost a lot of money. <laughs> uh, and so so they haven't done that, but they have approved. And this year, this summer, is a pilot program. I forget how much money they've dedicated to it, but it's basically going to provide about 25,000, 30,000 interrail tickets as a pilot program. Hmm. And with the goal of, of expanding this, with the, with the understanding or the belief that doing so, getting young people traveling uh, and interacting with each other as they travel. That's another whole dimension of the book that we didn't really talk about, the ways in which they are themselves interacting with each other within this network, right, uh, will be a, a positive good for Europeanism and the European Union. So we'll see. I, uh, the one thing I, I have to say is I really hope that that in this pilot program, they really think about in this lottery that they're setting up, um, how they're going to uh, ensure a very diverse pool, you know, so it's not just the people we would expect to interrail anyway, right. right? But that, but that they really, really put in, you know, weight the lottery so that we get a big variety of people, ethnic, national, gender, class, all that sort of stuff. 
Um, so it's clearly still really vibrant and relevant, mm-hmm. uh, these sorts of issues. Yeah. So Rick, we've uh, touched on the future of youth travel and the future of Europe. What about your future? What's, uh, what's next for you in terms of your research? Well, I've moved from backpackers to kayakers. Huh. A trio of French kayakers went down the Green and Colorado Rivers in 1938. They were the first to do so in kayaks, two men and a, and a woman. And they filmed their two-month journey in color film in 1938. Hmm. And so they become celebrities in France over the course of 1939. They're like interviewed all over the place in all kinds of magazines, on the covers of magazines doing radio shows and this sort of stuff. And each of them actually has a pretty interesting uh, life trajectory that involve uh, such things as the, the Lasco Caves and uh, the Lost Tribe, the quote-unquote Lost Tribe of the Lacondon uh, on the Mexico-Guatemalan borderlands. The French Resistance, and the French Resistance story is really interesting, the kayak, the holy kayak of the French Resistance. Um, Brigitte Bardot comes in, the princess of Pisa. <laughs> How old were so, they? <laughs> When they did this? <laughs> they were, uh, one was, had her birthday, uh, Genevieve had her birthday on the river. She turned 22, I think, when she's on the river. Mm-hmm. And then Antoine and Bernard were, were early 30s. Mm. Basically, I, I want to do a global microhistory that situates this trio and their experiences in mid-20th century global processes. Mm-hmm. And, and I have hundreds of photos and film footage, and, and Antoine wrote an extended poem about their adventure, and Bernard did all these quote-unquote explorer radio lectures and this sort of stuff. So I kind of, I intend to play with form a little bit also. I don't expect it to be a straightforward monograph. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to do something creative and intellectually interesting to me what exactly that'll end up looking like i'm not sure but but i have some ideas so we'll see well that sounds like a really exciting project uh rick i just want to thank you so much for joining me and for writing the book thank you roxanne it has been great <laughs>